Well, this morning we are moving forward here in our study of the Gospel of John that continues to point to the deity of the person of Jesus Christ, the fact of who he is, and the fact that he is uh, mankind's only hope. Uh, again, uh, John says, in essence, which uh, is his um, theme verse, John 20 and 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, you might remember that Jesus is teaching the truth. He's been teaching the truth for quite some time now there in the temple uh, concerning himself, concerning salvation, concerning the truth that God the Father had sent him into the world uh, to teach. And and you will also remember that the uh, reception that he has received has been nothing except hostile. Uh, He's received a a hostile uh, uh, reception. There's just been one attack after another attack of the religious leaders of Israel who want to shut him up who don't want to listen, and who in fact have a desire to murder him. You'll also remember back in chapter 6, before we entered into the temple in that long discourse, back in chapter 6 he was addressing the crowds. And you remember that the crowds were following him uh, initially uh, when he, they were receiving from him what they want, when they were getting breakfast right, uh, or, or dinner. And, um, but when Jesus uh, started to say things that they didn't like to hear, Uh, When the teaching became too difficult for them to accept, uh, many that were following him, following him out of wrong motives, uh, desiring again to have their physical needs met, uh, not again understanding who he is at the Savior of the world and their desperate need of him, uh, they turned away from him. And I bring that attention to you all the way back into chapter 5 because what you need to understand as we start into chapter 9, we're really in a turning point in our study of of the Gospel of John. Um, uh, Christ is going to start now turning his attention away from the false religious leaders and away from uh, the crowds that were following him. And and throughout the remainder of the book, he's going to start to pay more attention to his disciples, that inner circle, the twelve, intentionally teaching them what he wants them to know because his life and his ministry are, are drawing to a close because we're only about six months or so away from the cross. So again, the overall tone of, of the crowds, the overall tone of the religious leaders up to this point towards the, the words of Christ, towards the person uh, of Christ, has been one of rejection. So now the emphasis is going to change uh, away from, uh, again, the religious leaders, away from the masses and towards specifically his disciples. Because the masses, the crowds have uh, already made up their minds, the religious leaders have already made up their minds, they're going to reject him. Therefore, Jesus wants to make sure that in these last few months, he equips his followers for what awaits them. And as you come to chapter 9, the entirety of the chapter is really dealing with one issue, the miraculous healing of a man born blind. And the reality of that historical event and what that event illustrates or demonstrates. Again, it's another story that John puts forward to prove his thesis uh, again in John 20 and 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why he writes. He wants people to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and that by believing in his name, people might have life in his name. Now, I'm going to say something that's not very profound, but I need to say it. Uh, chapter 9 follows chapter 8. Okay? Chronologically. Some people think there's a great break uh, between the two chapters. And again, understanding the chapter divisions aren't divinely inspired. They're placed in there for our help. I think the events follow one right after another. I don't see a great break in time. So I think the events follow very closely together. Again, chapter 8 and chapter 9 are linked chronologically. They're linked with a number of things that happen in both chapters. 
Uh, so they're closely related. And while we never want to spiritualize a text, uh, chapter 9 obviously is a historical account of the healing of a man born blind. It's on also it's an interesting picture of, of spiritual blindness because often in the Scripture, uh, the Scripture uses physical blindness to represent spiritual realities. And we'll see that as we work our way through the text. Again, a historical fact of uh, this healing of this man born blind. Now go back just a little bit, uh, just back up into chapter 8, and, and just pick up the last verse there. Chapter 8, verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. It's 9, verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man born blind, or a man blind from birth. So again, I'm going to take the, uh, the view that he is just, Jesus has just exited the temple. He's just had this negative confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel. And as he exits the temple, he passes by and he sees a man who was blind from birth, right? A man who has been born blind. Now again, Jesus, just before he went back up, or just before he left the temple, uh, back up one more verse, chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. It's a very clear claim to deity, so he's made this claim. The religious leaders have picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus has gone out of the temple, and after walking out of the temple, again, not concerned with his own personal safety or welfare because he's not on man's timetable, he's on God's timetable. And even though the religious leaders want to murder him, again, they've taken up stones to stone him, Jesus stops. And he demonstrates what he always demonstrates, that is a compassionate heart of God. He passed by. It says, as he passed by, the next two words, he saw. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, a man who's been blind from birth is a man who's going to have to beg throughout his entire life for people to care for him. And right outside the temple is a good place to do that because you have people coming and going, large uh, amounts of uh, crowds in and out. And not only that, but you have people with various religious sentiments Degrees of religious sentiment that are going in and out. People who feel guilty, people who are devout, people who are trying to, quote-unquote, earn their salvation as that system um, uh, put forward. People who are trying to do good works, if you will. So that's probably a good strategic place for a beggar to be right outside the temple where you've got large, large groups of people coming in and out doing deeds of charity and, and kindness. And again, Jesus is going to heal this man. Again, the entire chapter focuses on this... Uh, uh, undeniable miracle that again brings clarity to who actually the person of jesus christ is it, it confirms again that his divine authority it confirms his divine power even though the religious leaders in the context of the story have completely rejected him even though they want to stone him to death as jesus has just very clearly said before abraham was born i am again to be the to be god in the flesh a claim to be deity the very same one who just a few verses earlier, back in chapter 8, verse 24, said, You shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Uh, so again, the so-called religious leaders of Israel have completely rejected him. But he's going to, again, prove he is, or prove exactly who he is as God in the flesh. Uh, again, it's another uh, uh, demonstration of his miraculous power, healing this man uh, uh, born blind, this blind man. And the demonstrations of his divine power by the person of Jesus Christ were something that he did often. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. 
verse 24 of Matthew 4, and the good news about him went all uh, went out into all of Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill and taken with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew eight sixteen, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed, and he, he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were ill. Matthew nine thirty five, Jesus was going about in all of the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 12, verse 22, uh, there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him. So the, the, the dumb man uh, spoke and saw. In, in the three-year ministry of uh, Jesus Christ, there are well over 95 New Testament texts in the four Gospels that heal with uh, Christ's healing. I, I would agree with many commentators who would say that during Christ's incarnation, Christ literally banished disease from Palestine. And to get a more accurate understanding or greater appreciation of what's going on here in the healing of Christ and just how dramatic these healings were in the context of the day in which they occurred, and in the day in which Christ lived, people didn't live very long on the earth. People died pretty early because the world is full of disease. The world is full of sickness. Diseases that could not be dealt with properly. Diseases that, for the most part, ran their course without any intervention. So there were always people who were sick, always people who were dying in your midst, because medicine and the medical sciences, as we know it today, uh, virtually were non-existent. There were no hospitals. There were no medications like we think. So on that day, there were always people around you who were sick and dying, because, again, medicine and the medical sciences, as we have it, uh, weren't there. Pain and suffering and anguish... uh, uh, along with, again, disease unchecked, was just a way of life. There was no way to alleviate a vast number of, uh, uh, of diseases that were rampant all the time at the time of Christ. Cancers, blindness, polio, paralysis, infection, plagues, tumors, whatever it, uh, whatever it was, it just went on unalleviated. Un, un, uh, again, no way to deal with them. But Christ, out of a heart of compassion, met people where they were. Christ, out of a heart of compassion, met people at the greatest point of their Uh, greatest pain at the point of crisis the point of their greatest pain that being the situation of their physical sickness and as he passed by he saw a man blind from birth now i've mentioned this to you uh, previously and again you need to remember that if you back away again take out the context of, of our day and our understanding but if you just look at biblically the issue of healings the issue of healings is a very rare issue very rare very unusual virtually a non-existence uh, with a non-existent, with a very few uh, occasions, a very few exceptions to the contrary. But when Jesus shows up, miracles uh, explode in every direction. It's interesting that there's no uh, recorded miracle in the uh, the Bible for the first 30 years of the life of Christ. But then, at the age of 30, when he enters into his public ministry, then they begin. In the context of John, you know, you get the water uh, being turned into wine at the wedding of Cain, and that's the first miracle he did. And throughout that first uh, or throughout that three-year ministry, public ministry of Christ, I, I don't think it's uh, out of line to say that uh, healings are happening almost virtually on a daily basis. Jesus was known throughout the entire region, throughout the entire area, to have the power to heal. Again, demonstrating the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that Jesus is God come in flesh, come into the world that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah said would happen when Messiah showed up in the world. 
In the context, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, the Father is speaking of the Messiah. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand which and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant uh, to the people, a light to the nations. Here it is, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in the darkness uh, from prison. Peter, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So the miracles and the miraculous power of Jesus was numerous. Uh, Again, probably something happening almost on a daily basis. And just one miracle alone should change everybody's view uh, concerning who they perceive Jesus to be. Just one miracle on the level that Christ performed these should cause uh, people to understand his divinity and to affirm his deity. But instead of men bowing their knee and humbly repenting, all Jesus' miracles did was only elevate the anger of the, unbelief, uh, of the unbeliever. All that his miraculous power demonstrated does is increase the unbeliever's hatred. Again, the conflict is ramping up. It's being, the heat is being turned up, uh, if you will. So again, we're really at a crossroads here in our study of the book of John. Uh, the, the attention that Christ is going to give, again, he's going to turn away from the religious leaders, turn away from the crowds. Uh, they've come to a conclusion about him, and he's going to start to really focus in on his disciples. Uh, the crowd is going to continue to go the direction they want to go. Uh, they're going to increase in their hostility towards the person of Jesus Christ until they do what? Call out for his murder, right? So, th- so the crowd and the religious leaders, their rejection is in total. Now, as we begin to work our way through the text... Uh, again, the entire chapter, chapter 9, is dealing with the issue of the miraculous healing of this man born blind. And again, what you need to know also about the time in which Christ lived, when he was incarnate, blindness was a very common reality in the, this part of the world. Poverty, unsanitary conditions, a lack of proper medical care, accidents, war, uh, blinding sunlight, blowing sand, all contributed to blindness. Many have uh, suggested perhaps the most common uh, cause of uh, uh, blindness a- in this time through disease Uh, was uh, specifically the disease of gonorrhea that would find its way from the woman's body into the eyes of the child at birth. And from there, the disease would permanently cause uh, blindness uh, to the child. So as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now again, more than likely, you look in the context of the story, this man has been begging there in front of the temple for a very long time. And more than likely, because this man has been begging there in the temple, in front of the temple for a very long time, more than likely, the religious leaders had passed by him often without compassion. But Jesus, who's been rejected in the temple, who's being uh, pursued with uh, stones by the uh, religious leaders to kill him, the text says, but Jesus, as he passed by, he saw. He saw a man blind from birth. Again, the sovereign compassion God and the compassion of God and the, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. He reaches out to meet the needs of those in the world who cannot meet their own needs. Again, he's the one who just said in the previous chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Right? So this one who is the light of the world is going to bring physical light into these eyes that have never worked from birth. This man's never seen a sunrise. This man has never seen a sunset. This man has never seen another face, let alone his own face. 
In fact, this man can't even see Jesus when Jesus comes because of his blindness. It's a physical reality. But again, it's also a picture of the condition of every man since the fall. Because every man born in this world is born spiritually blind. Just like this man doesn't have the ability to see Jesus physically, the unbeliever lacks the ability to see Jesus spiritually. And again, while physical blindness is what's being addressed here uh, in the story, again, it's often used biblically as a metaphor for uh, mankind's spiritual condition. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, you might remember that passage, uh, the Lord pronounces a series of woes or damnations uh, upon the religious leaders of, uh, of his day, specifically for their spiritual blindness. He says to them, woe to you blind guides. These are the spiritual leaders, so-called of Israel. Woe to you blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men, you blind Pharisees. They couldn't see anything. And the spiritual blindness that they had and that all unregenerate men have, of course, is caused by sin. And every man born into the world is blind to spiritual truth. Because of the fall of Adam, uh, the entire race has been cast into spiritual darkness. So again, the entire race falls into two categories. Those who will never see the truth and the reality of who God in Christ is. And those who, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit have their eyes opened, their hearts and minds enlightened to the truth. I say that, how many times have I said it through the study of the book of John, only two kinds of people in the world. Here in the context, those who are blind and those who see. That's it. And those who remain blind, or blind to the truth will remain enemies of God forever. Those who, by God's grace, have been enlightened to see the truth will enjoy intimate fellowship with God the Father forever. And the deciding factor, as always, uh, is what a man or woman does with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the person who rejects Christ as Savior and Lord remains spiritually in blindness forever. The person who repents, who humbles themselves, who believes upon Christ, confesses him as Lord, will be the recipient of spiritual sight as well as spiritual life. And sadly, again, when you kind of back away and look at the entire context of the Bible, the Reality is the vast majority of the people don't even know they're blind, nor do they care. The vast majority of people, when they are offered sight, refuse it. John 1 and 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's the person of Jesus Christ. It says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. When offered light... Men reject it. John 3 and 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Paul told the Romans, Romans 1 and 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God has made himself very clear, very evident, uh, very visible, clearly through the creation. Therefore, every man, every woman is without excuse, but unbelieving eyes reject the evidence. Blind to the truth, blind to the person of God, blind to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, darkened in their understanding. In fact, that, uh, that is exactly what Paul told uh, uh, the Ephesians of the, redeemed, the unredeemed man, 
unredeemed men, Ephesians 4.18, are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. To the Corinthians, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4.3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So men blinded by sin, men blinded by Satan, can't see. They can't see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And if men continue in that state because of their love for their own sin and their allegiance to Satan, if they continue to persistently reject the light that God gives concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then at some point God himself will confirm that self-chosen darkness and blindness as a judicial judgment upon their unbelief. And I would suggest to you that's exactly what you're seeing uh, by way of a kind of a side to the thought here, but that's exactly what you're seeing here uh, in the world, right? You're, you're seeing a, a spiritual blindness and God giving men over because men have rejected the truth of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, okay, have your way. And when you reject the truth, there's nothing but lies that left remain uh, and, and people are believing all kinds of lives across the planet. But the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to give sight, uh, to, to, to restore sight to the blind. What was the, one of the first things he did when he began his public ministry? You might remember back in uh, Luke chapter four, eighteen, right? Picks up the scroll, begins to teach, turns to the prophet Isaiah, and he reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives to and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. God desires that men would see. God desires that men would repent, come to understanding of the truth, repent of their sin, and fall down and worship the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and not perish. That's why God, God the Father sent out a tremendous love for the fallen world, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Now again, all of the healings that Christ performed are on a physical level, level are obviously a demonstration of his divine power and again, proof of his messianic credentials. But they're also a great picture of spiritual realities. Because every time that Christ opened the eyes of someone physically blind, it was a picture of what he wants to do to the human heart so that people might see his glory and see the glory of the Father. Every time he gave hearing to the deaf, it's a picture of opening up stopped ears so that people can hear uh, the word of God. And every time he raised somebody from the dead, it's again a picture of the fact that he wants to bring to men spiritual life, right? To bring forgiveness of sin by way of his substitution for their sin. Because God is not only absolutely control over the spiritual realm, but he's also an absolute control over the physical realm. Right, so all of these are a demonstration of the power of God, of what he wants to do uh, in, in the hearts and lives of men. So every time he brings, every time Christ brought physical healing, again, he's putting on display the compassionate heart of God. And again, that's what's on display here in the text of, of John 9. The compassionate heart of God that reaches out to those who are in need. Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, again, Jesus did what the religious leaders of Israel would not do. He saw the man. He saw the man, and he stopped out of compassion to care for him. Again, in the Gospel of John, this is the seventh of the eight miracles that John records in his Gospel, four in Galilee, four in Judah. 
the four in Galilee were turning water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, feeding the multitude, and then walking on the water. The four that are done in Judea are the purifying of the temple, the healing of the paralytic man, restoring sight to the blind, and then in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. So again, this healing, this physical healing of the blind man was again what Israel expected, what the Jews expected of Messiah when he'd come, when, when he would come, that he would come and give sight to the blind. It was one of the signs that Jesus directed John the Baptist's attention to uh, when he was in prison doubting. You remember the story, Matthew chapter 11, verse 3? His, John's disciples are sent to Christ. He sends them to, to Christ uh, to ask him the question, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? I don't quite understand why I'm suffering in prison. I thought you were the Messiah, but let, let me just get a clarification here. Are you the one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Verse 5, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. I mean, I'm exactly who you were looking forward to. Right? If you're looking forward to the truth, the true one coming. The true one comes up and performs exactly what God says he's going to do when he shows up, and they still don't believe. That's the hardness of their heart. Right, so this miracle of this man who was born blind being healed, it's a miracle that is undeniable. It's a work that's done in public. Where's this, where's this uh, blind guy sitting? He's outside the temple. Where's, who's outside the temple? Vast majorities of people walking back and forth. Here's a guy who's been sitting out of the temple for a long time. He's well known by everybody who's passing in and out of the temple. So it's impossible for the Jews in Jerusalem to deny this, uh, this miracle, the miraculous power of Christ as he performs this so. Uh, healing of this man born blind now it's interesting christ looks and he sees and he sees with the heart of compassion and christ again sees this man through the same eyes the heart of compassion the disciples on the other hand they saw this man as an interesting theological study isn't that the way we are often are verse 2 his disciples ask him saying rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Christ sees this man through a heart of compassion. They think he is some kind of interesting theological case study. Now just stop and consider the fact that this man was born, listen, this man was born blind. Therefore, he could not have possibly been responsible for his condition unless somehow he sinned before he was born. Stop and think about that for a moment. Now, the disciples must have considered that a possibility because they asked the question. Because that view was widespread in the contemporary Judaism of the day that a child could somehow sin while still in their mother's womb. And many would base that on the account of uh, the situation between Jacob and Esau struggling in the womb. Many Jews bought into the ancient era that uh, the soul pre-exists birth. Some even held to reincarnation and, and you see that view that someone can come back in a, a different life you see that error in thinking in matthew 16 verse 13 when jesus came to the district of caesarea philippi he began asking his disciples saying who do people say that the son of man is and they said some say john the baptist others say elijah others still say jeremiah or one of the prophets and he said to them but who do you say that i am 
Well, who, who, do, who do people say that I am? Well, some say this guy, some say that guy, some say this dead guy of my past. So again, evidently, the text shows that in that period of time, uh, the Jewish people thought that one of the souls of the prophets of old was somehow reincarnated, or at least the possibility that he was reincarnated in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Now again, it's a, 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 a rather insensitive question that the disciples would ask. Again, this man needs compassion. They're turning into a theological study. And again, when they ask this question, it also exposes another common error of the Jewish thought of that day, that there's always a direct correlation between sin and suffering. Go back and think about Job and his so-called comforters. They came to him and said, well, Job, if you're suffering, you know, there has to be some kind of sin in your life. So why don't you just get to it, confess it, and get on with it? When the reality is that wasn't true. And the reality is all suffering in this world, while all suffering in this world can be traced back to the fall of Adam, is the introduction of uh, sin into the human race, while there are at times a correlation uh, between suffering and sin, it's also a reality that the righteous suffer in a fallen world, apart from any specific evil, apart from any specific sin that they've done. Right? So as to the possibility of the parents, maybe it was the parents who'd done something, parents who'd sinned, that's why there's... But man was born blind. Well, we see that principle kind of played out everywhere. Sometimes children who are born of, a, excuse me, a mother who smokes or a drug addict or alcoholic, they suffer physical or mental impairments by the, because of the poor choice that the mother has made while the child was still in the womb. And as I just previously said in the text there, uh, the eyes of babies born uh, to women who have uh, certain venereal diseases can be infected with that disease as the baby passes through the birth canal if the eyes are not medically uh, treated after the birth and blindness can occur. In fact, I read this past week that there's a tremendously high percentage of blind individuals in the world, or of that tremendously high percentage or the, 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 of the number of people who are blind in the world, there's a tremendously high percentage of those individuals that come from countries where they don't have the ability to care for the eyes after birth because of venereal diseases, and those diseases cause their blindness. Now, another possibility here in, in that thinking of the disciples when they asked this question, uh, again, turned this into a theological uh, uh, discussion, what was a, a mistaken uh, a perception, a mistaken understanding of the Old Testament passages such as Exodus 20 and 5 and Exodus 34, 7, in, in which God seems to promise punishment uh, on children for the sins of their parents. Uh, Exodus 25 says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Uh, Exodus 34 and 7 says pretty uh, nearly the, the same statement. But when you read those statements, you really got to take them in an understanding of a national or societal level. Uh, the point of those passages is that the effect of a corrupt, wicked generation going to seep down into the subsequent generations. <clears throat> All those statements are really axiomatic truths. Uh, they're obvious reality. Each successive generation suffers the consequences of the previous generation's uh, disobedience. Uh, one uh, generation of Israel disobeyed God and rebelled against God, and the next generation spent uh, their time wandering around in the wilderness in the Exodus, right? Same principle applies uh, to us today. The sins of this generation, which are many, are going to be passed down negatively and affect the next generations ahead of us. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in a whole lot of trouble at the moment. I can hardly bear to think how much trouble there is going to be facing those who come after us because of our rebellion. 
It's not those guys. It's our rebellion. Because it's a national issue. It's a societal issue. When Daniel was carried off into captivity, he didn't say those people sinned, and that's why I'm suffering hardship. He said, we have sinned. Daniel chapter 9, you go and read it. We have sinned. And my dear friends, we are in the United States of America, and we are united in our rebellion against God. Not actively, passively. Not actively, passively, and not standing up for righteousness and saying, you cannot do that. That is a sin against God. Sin and rebellion of our generation is going to be passed to the next generation on a national and societal level. It is an axiomatic truth. But the idea that a child is going to be punished for, his, for the sins of his parents personally or that he is personally responsible for the sins of his parents, which is being pushed in this country today through critical race theory, that concept is absolutely foreign to Scripture. Deuteronomy 24.16 Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18.20 The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteous of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So those verses teaching again the principle of individual responsibility because that's what the Bible teaches. On a national societal level, our children are going to face the consequences of our rebellion, but sin is judged on a personal level. You are not responsible for the sins of your forefathers and the sins of their forefathers. You're responsible for your sin. His disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned that this man uh, this man or his parents that he should be born blind? Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither this man who sinned or his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. So again, Jesus corrects the error of these men in their thinking. And in one statement, he wipes out the error of thinking there's always a direct link between uh, uh, suffering and personal sin. Sin, sickness, suffering, disease, defect, death, all are a reality in a fallen world. But not all disease, not all defect, not all suffering comes from personal sin. In this case that uh, 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 of this man born blind, this man who is afflicted, Jesus says, it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, the commentator F.F. Bruce adds this, which I think is very helpful. He says, This does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think that would again be an aspersion on the character of God. It does mean, he says, it does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew into manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and others, seeing his work, uh, seeing this work of God, might turn to the, light, to the true light of the world. That's good, right? He might be recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and others, seeing this work of God, might turn to the true light of the world, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
right? So, so this man who was born blind, this man that was afflicted, why? In order that the works of God might be displayed in him. The purpose of this man's blindness was to reveal the power of God, the miraculous power of God found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who again is mankind's only hope. It was to again substantiate his claim to be the light of the world, uh, the, the great I am, right? God come in the flesh. I mean, he had just walked out of the temple where the religious leaders are persecuting him, accusing him, want to take up stones. You are not any of those things to be who you claim to be. He walks outside the temple and immediately heals a man to say, you people have no idea what you're talking about. And people just go, well, I, don't, I really don't see any evidence that Jesus is anything more than just a prophet. Just some religious fanatic who got carried away. That's blindness. That's a continual intentional rejection of the obvious, the truth. Who, who born blind ever receives their sight? You know, nobody does that. Nobody has that kind of power except the person of Jesus Christ. The one who created the world. The one who created the universe. And all that is in it by the power of his word. Spoke it all into existence. The God who created the universe, the God who created the world, and all that is in it by the power of his word is going to create, perform another creation miracle. He's going to give eyes to a man who never had eyes. Sight to a man who never had sight. Eyes again to a man who had eyes that never worked. This man was afflicted in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. J.C. Ryle says the meaning of this must be that this man's blindness was permitted and overruled by God in order that his works of mercy and healing him might be shown to men. This blindness was allowed and ordained by God, not because uh, this man was especially wicked, but in order to furnish a platform for the exhibition of the work of divine mercy and power. Ryle goes on, he says, a deep and instructive principle lies in these words that surely throw some light onto the great question of the origin of evil. God has thought it fit to allow evil to exist in order that he may have a platform for showing his mercy, grace, and compassion. If man had never fallen, there would never be no opportunity for showing divine mercy. But by permitting evil, mysterious as it seems, God's work of grace, mercy, and wisdom and saving sinners have been wonderfully manifested to all his creatures. The redeeming of the church of the elect sinners is the means of showing to the principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God, as it says in Ephesians 3. Without the fall, we should not have known anything of the cross and of the gospel. That's a great statement. Putting the power of God on display. Another very ancient commentator says this, Why was this man born blind? The answer that the works of God might appear in Christ to cure him. Why did man fall that God might save him? Why is evil permitted in the world that God may be glorified in removing it? Why does the body of men die that God may raise it up again? The writer says, when we philosophize or think uh, or understand in this manner, we find light and certainly we find comfort. Amen? I mean, if everything in the world is just random chance and no one's in charge of anything, we're in a bad spot. (laughs) Well, God is not the author or the originator who does not ordain evil. God overcomes evil because God is sovereign over everything and everyone. The devil is in the world, but the devil is on a short leash. He's God's devil, as Luther used to say. 
It was neither this man sin nor his parents but it was in order that the works of god might be displayed in him so again god sovereignly chose to use this man's affliction for this man's benefit for the glory of god and again as a demonstration of god's compassion and power through the person of jesus christ and most certainly as a demonstration of the reality of who jesus christ is to everybody who just followed him out of the temple and everybody who's paying attention to the story who saw this guy on a regular basis verse four We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. So again, God the Father had a purpose for sending his son into the world. He had a mission to work the works of him who sent me. And then Jesus adds, we must work the works. Because in the plan of God at the time, uh, the disciples were also empowered to do the work that the Father had sent Jesus uh, uh, into the world to do. For for example, in Matthew 10 and 1, at the beginning of their public ministry, Matthew 10 and 1, having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Because again, I've told you previously, the miracles always authenticate the message and the messenger. That's how you see them always uh, throughout the entire Bible. We must work the work of him who sent me as long as as it is day. That just speaks of urgency. As long as it is day. It's not always going to be day. Urgency. Time's running out. Again, in the context of the story, we're only a few months before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, only a few months more, and Christ is not going to be physically present with them. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Night is coming certainly speaks to the issue of the coming death of Christ, when he's going to be taken away from his disciples, when they're going to be overwhelmed by darkness, overwhelmed by sorrow, unable to work, until the coming of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost comes and then again empowers them for ministry. We must work the works of him who sent me, As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work, that means that we really need to redeem the time. It's a call on us to redeem the time. Days are evil. It says that in Ephesians 5.18. It says in Colossians 4.5, we are to make the most of our time. Again, time's running out. While the last days, technically we always been the time since the time of Christ's incarnation, we're most certainly living closer to the end of the last days time to work we don't have much time left i don't know how much time we have we don't know how much time we have either we on a personal level or until god is done with this period of history again you can look to the west you can see the storm clouds are gathering we need to make the most of our time make the most of every opportunity the days are evil you can see that everywhere we need to make sure therefore because we have a sense of urgency that our priorities that our priorities are the lord's priorities and that we're not wasting our time. There's a thousand and forty-seven issues that are going on in this culture and around the world that are problematic. And I would suggest to you they're all symptoms of one disease, that's sin and rebellion against God. When you go to the doctor, you want your symptoms alleviated. The doctor wants to know what is the etiology, what is the cause of your disease. You want an you um, a aspirin. The doctor wants to know what's the underlying problem. He can give you uh, an aspirin and you may have brain cancer and need a surgery. 
and the aspirin will do nothing except to slow down the symptoms, we can try to slow down the symptoms by a whole lot of ridiculous things that are nothing more than time wasters, or we can get to the bottom line issue and understand that every issue that you see in the culture, every single issue that makes your head explode on a daily basis is because of mankind's rebellion against God. Indeed, has God said, and the answer is yes, he has very clearly. He speaks without stutter or error. So don't be fighting the battle on who gets to marry who or what sex is this or what does the Bible say on the issue? Everything comes down to one symptom. It's rebellion. And without wasting our time, we need to help people see that reality that they need to repent and come to faith in Christ because what? Time is short. Eternity is coming. God in his immense grace and kindness has offered to men salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. I was thinking this week as I'm studying this text. In the back room in Iraq, we have a bunch of Gospels of John. Okay, little tiny, hand, little tiny Gospels of John like that big. You should have one or ten in your possession. And if we run out, we'll buy another box of them. But that's a good book to hand out to somebody who doesn't know the truth. Right? Here's the truth. Why have these things been written? That you may understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I'm not a theologian. I don't have... Can you hand out a book? Or we have some kind of theological discussion instead of just showing compassion to people who are in desperate need of compassion. People are duped by the devil. People are... Uh, are trapped by their own sin. They're blind to the glory of the person of Christ. Only thing that's going to set men free. I think I read this someplace. Help me out. It's the truth that sets you free. People need the truth. We happen to be ambassadors of the truth. Everywhere we go. Verse 5. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, Jesus is always the light of the world, but the light's going to go out in a sense because... He's going to be physically not present with them. The light shines most brightly during his earthly ministry. And that light shines into the darkness. Again, he is the healer not only of men's bodies. He's the healer, the deliverer of the soul. That light that came into the world, John spoke about it all the way back in the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. Did you know that dead people can't see anything? Did you know that dead people can't see light? Men who are dead in their trespasses and sins can't see the light of Christ until God in his rich kindness removes the veil. The true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, John 1 and 9, John 1 and 12, but as many as received him to those he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we we beheld his glory we saw the glory of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth only because of the kindness and the mercy of God in our lives verse 6 when he said this when he said I am the light of the world uh, I am uh, while I am in the world I am the light of the world verse 6 when he said this he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and he said to him go wash in the pool of Siloam which is translated sent and so he went away and washed and came back seeing so again here uh, is the reality of who Jesus is here's a demonstration again of his divine power it's on full display 
the one again whom the crowds and the religious leaders of Israel have uh, dismissed completely, he chooses to heal this blind man by spitting uh, into uh, some uh, clay or some dirt, making spittle, making some, or spits into the dirt, makes some mud, and then applies it to the man's eyes, and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, why did he do that? Well, we're not told why. A lot of speculation over the years throughout the history of the church is why the Lord healed this man in this fashion. But again, since we're not told why, any kind of guess would be nothing but mere speculation. All we know for certain is this man was born blind. He has his eyes anointed by Christ, and in obedience to Christ, he does what Christ says to do, and his eyes are open. That's the story. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, creates eyes in this man on the spot as this man obeys Christ. Now, back away from the story just for a moment and just think about it on a purely physical, practical level. And then also realize there's something else going on behind the scenes. But again, here's a man who never had sight. He cannot see Jesus. He has no ability. And then again, this man whom he cannot see comes up and spits on the ground, makes some clay, and rubs it into his eyes, and then tells this man to go wash in a certain pool, and the man just does it. There's no like, no, no, I'm not doing that. That's a trick. No, he just does it. Why does he do that? Why does the man respond in that kind of fashion? Because the story, again, is more than just physical healing. It's more than just about physical healing. It really is a picture of spiritual regeneration. It is God beginning to do a work of regeneration in this man's heart as he reacts to the commands of Christ in obedience. He obeys this man whom he can't even see. He can't even identify. Again, it's an illustration of of regeneration. It's an illustration of new life coming forward. Uh, Drop down to verse 32 of the chapter. Chapter, chapter, drop down to verse 32 of the same chapter. Here's the formerly blind man speaking. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could, not, he could do nothing. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put this man out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Again, the creator of the universe, the light of the world, one who has been rejected by the crowds, the one who has been rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, has not only given physical light to this man, he's actually given him spiritual life. Spiritual light. And this formerly blind man now now sees what many cannot and will not see. The reality of the fact that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And this, the response to the person of Christ is he's worshiping him. He worships him. If this man were not from God, he, he could do nothing. Since from the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind pretty spectacular miracle right out in the open spat on the ground he made clay of spittle and applied clay to his eyes he said to him go wash in the pool of siloam which is translated scent now this pool of water has no more healing efficacy than any other body of water anywhere but the command is a test of faith And in obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, this blind man finds what he he wants. He finds eyes to see. 
The pool of Siloam was supplied by a tunnel uh, built in Hezekiah's days from the spring of Gihon. Uh, it was a tunnel that came out of the city in Jerusalem so they'd have water supply even if they were under siege. So on one level, the word sent refers to the source of water, this spring of Gihon, uh, into the city. But certainly John has to be using it as a reference to uh, the relationship of the fact that this blind man's obedience, right? this man, this man blindly obeys, literally, uh, the person of Jesus Christ, the one whom God the Father had sent into the world as the Messiah. So in obedience to the sent one of God, in obedience to the sent one of God, the great healer of all diseases, the creator of the universe, this man is healed and given sight. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away, washed, and he came back seen. So again, a physical reality, a, rea- a reality, a physical healing, but also one, as one commentator, commentator puts it, uh, this is how salvation works by way of analogy. The writer says, Sovereign grace confronts the blind, the helpless, the hopeless, begging sinner. He can't see, but uh, he can't see, he can't see God, he can't see Christ, but sovereign grace comes to him, places his glorious, merciful hands on his sightless soul, asks only a response of simple faith, and prompts that response. He finds his way to the cleansing water, which is an emblem of the messianic salvation and Messiah, and he comes back and he can see spiritually. Right? That's a great statement. He obeyed. He came back seeing. Verse 8. Therefore, or the neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Verse 9. Others were saying... This is he, but still others were saying no. So now we, we've gone from a philosophical discussion. Now we've got an argument over the identity of this individual. Why? Because his healing, obviously, the healing of this blind man has obviously caused quite a sensation in the, in the neighborhood. And again, it causes a debate to break out over uh, the identity of this man and what actually happened. Did our eyes actually see what we think our eyes saw? Who is this person really? Is this the one who used to sit at the gate, or is this, is this a case of mistaken identity? So again, they have seen this man again previously, uh, and, and apparently none of them ever stopped uh, to offer any kind of compassionate help that uh, was any kind of lasting aid to this individual because he kept just sitting there begging every day. They don't care about him either. Is not this the one who sits and begs or used to sit and beg? The others were saying, this is he. Others were saying, no. He just looks like him. And this man kept saying, I'm the one. And the people kept having the argument, and he kept saying, no, no, I'm he, it's me, I'm the one. No, 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 I don't know. He kind of looks like he maybe he's what me. No, I'm the one. I'm the one. We certainly wouldn't want to receive a testimony from somebody who's experienced the kindness of Christ, would we, to come and bring a settling issue to the, to the story. We certainly wouldn't want some guy who was formerly blind who now has sight to bring sight to the blind who don't want to see what they don't want to see. So again, the crowd wants to believe this is some kind of case of mistaken identity rather than believing an actual miracle had occurred in their presence. But again, the previously blind man just kept repeating over and over, kept saying again and again, I'm the one, I'm the one. Verse 10. Therefore they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? Verse 11. You know what? They're not going to like verse 11. I should skip it. Verse 11, he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go wash in Siloam, and I washed, and I went away and washed, and I received my sight. 
Nothing more but a very simple, straightforward testimony to the fact of what happened. To the facts of what happened to him by a man who is called Jesus. And that name Jesus is a name that the religious leaders of Israel hated. Whom this man, who was once formerly blind, now sees as precious. Verse 12, and they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. I mean, how in the world could he? He used to be blind. He doesn't even know who this person looks like, right? He'd never seen Jesus before. There's no way for him to identify him. He's not going to appear to him. Jesus is not going to appear to him until, as we just read down in verse 35. So again, very simply, here's the power of Christ on display. Here's the divinity of Christ. Here's the one whom the crowds and the religious leaders have rejected, the compassionate Christ, who has the power to overcome sin, who has the power to de- defeat physical illnesses and disease, the one who has the ability to restore our fallen, broken bodies. But again, more importantly, he has the power to bring life to the spiritually dead, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, because he's the light of the world. Right? He's the one who dispels the darkness in man to open the eyes of those born blind so that people might see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. So again, the, the story is an actual story of the physical healing of this man born blind, but it's also a wonderful illustration of the process of salvation. Because being born in this world, we're blind. We can't see our sin. Uh, we can't see our sin. We can't see God. We can't see Christ. We have no capacity to recognize the uh, Savior and no way to initiate our deliverance, no way to overcome our blindness, blindness, no way to uh, uh, to uh, initiate our rescue, no way to solve our problems. But God in his mercy through Christ, he comes and he finds us. Again, the blind man would have never received his sight unless Christ reached out to him. And the same thing is true of us in our salvation. We have never would never have been healed from our sin unless Christ reached out to us first. But God in his immense kindness reaches out to us in our blindness and he gives us sight. And all it takes is a simple act of faith and obedience to the gospel, believing upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're washed. Our eyes are open. We who are once blind can now see. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we, just like this man and the story, we do what? We fall down before the Savior and we worship him. Amen?